0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park, a podcast exploring every creature feature before the iconic Jurassic Park. And today, we're continuing our 80s splatter movies with aliens. It is rare that someone goes from the realm of ripoff to working on the real thing. Yet, that's the exact career trajectory of James Cameron the man who would helm the sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien. If one were to watch movies like Galaxy of Terror or Battle Beyond the Stars, you'll notice a distinct Alien quality. Roger Corman is the king of schlock, especially during this era. This is where Cameron got his start. On the aforementioned film, he was not the director or even the writer. Cameron was in art and production departments. It was Corman that the birth of aliens can truly be seen. Producer Gail Ann Hurd, composer James Horner, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and the Skotaks are all veterans of Corman. When James Cameron was prepping for pre-production on the original Terminator, there was a delay in filming as Schwarzenegger was contractually obligated to produce a Conan the Barbarian sequel for Dino De Laurentiis. As such, Cameron had some extra time on his hands. This extra time soon became extra crunch, as he was writing a sequel to Rambo First Blood at the same time as he was hired by Fox to write up a treatment for the sequel to Alien. He did not fully get through his initial treatment, but the studio told Gail Ann Hurd that they would wait for Cameron to finish The Terminator as they were a huge fan of this script. The Terminator was a huge hit upon release, and as such, Cameron was brought on to write and direct the sequel, which at that point was just called Alien 2. The reasons for this fast delay is getting a sequel is mostly related to the revolving stock of top players in the Fox offices. It was not until a new management was in place that David Giller, producer of the original Alien, was able to get the ball rolling on a sequel. Cameron's script was incredibly ambitious and had more than a little influence from Vietnam. It should be no surprise that Nam was on Cameron's brain as he was working on the aforementioned Rambo sequel. Taking place 57 years after the original Alien, it would work to further isolate Ellen Ripley from everything she held dear. The true strength of Aliens is that unlike most sequels, it is not a retread of the first movie it takes a much more combat-oriented approach and makes a slow-paced horror film into a high-octane action picture. At first, actress Sigourney Weaver was a little weary about revisiting her now iconic character. She was making a film in France when she received the script for Aliens and was eventually won over. Weaver admits in an interview that she skims stage directions when reading potential scripts, and as such, she missed the excess of gunplay that fills the movie. Weaver is a staunch supporter of gun control, and never felt comfortable with the amount of gunplay in the final film. There were brief moments when the studio asked Gamron and Heard to create a version of the film without Ripley, as Weaver understandably wanted a pay increase to do the sequel. Thankfully, the studio and Sigourney came to an agreement allowing Ripley to once again do battle with the Xenomorphs. The design of Aliens was accomplished through the strong outlines of concept artists Sid Mead and Ron Cobb. Both artists had different styles, with Cobb being a more practical design-oriented artist and Mead being more fanciful. The combination of both ideas ensured that the look of Aliens is incredibly unique, whilst also feeling functional. It was up to the production designer, Peter Lamont, to bring these concepts into reality. Lamont worked on a lot of James Bond films and used his work on the real to incorporate the surreal. Case in point, the iconic alien's dropship was fitted with the undercarriage of an Avro Vulcan, a bomber that was being retired by the Royal Air Force. The APC was created from the body of an airplane towing vehicle, which originally weighed 75 tons until it was stripped down and repurposed to be a mere 35 tons. The weapons used on film were built over weapons that looked the best when they fired blanks on screen. The pulse rifle was built over the shell of an old Thompson machine gun, and the smart gun was built over an MG42 machine gun. The smart gun is attached to a steadicam harness, which gives it a unique look on screen. Their budget ensured that certain elements of production had to be stripped down or achieved in creative ways. A good example of this creativity can be found when the crew of the Sulaco wakes up from their sleep pods. They did not have the money to create the amount of pods they wanted, so they used double mirrors to create the illusion that there were more pods than actually were on film. The filming for the majority of the picture took place inside of a decommissioned coal plant in Britain. The plant was in a state of disrepair and had an asbestos problem. Getting it safe for filming was not a cheap endeavor. Any sequences featuring the APCs were nerve-wracking as they had to reinforce the floors to ensure the extremely heavy vehicles did not fall through the floor of the plant. Any time a studio was needed for production, they used Pinewood Studios. Pinewood had a nasty habit of creating massive fires on their back lot to get rid of old production material, and this led to a lot of debris strewn around an unending bonfire. The production team used this to their advantage, taking bits and pieces of garbage left over from other chutes to give the lived-in feel of the colony on LV. 426. The casting process was extensive and it took a lot of faces to finally get the cast they wanted. In order to maintain a sense of cohesion within the cast, they had a military instructor train the cast for two weeks. Even child actor Carrie Henn would join in on the training and tried to play along with the adult cast. Sigourney Weaver, Paul Reiser, William Hope, and Michael Bean did not experience the training, which helped to reinforce their status as outliers in the final film. Bean would have been part of the training, however he was only brought on to the roles of Hicks after actor James Remar left the role a few weeks into production. Actress Jeanette Goldstein was a weightlifter before taking the role of Vasquez. It's worth noting that in the final film, Goldstein is portraying a Hispanic character despite her being a Caucasian actress. Lance Henriksen had a lot of enthusiasm towards the role of the ship's android bishop. He mentions watching android portrayals as far back as the original Metropolis for research, and with his own money, bought custom-made contacts that gave his eyes the illusion of double irises. These contact lenses do not appear in the final picture, as Cameron felt they would give away his status as an android too early. Al Matthews, who played Sergeant A. Pone, was a combat vet and as such took the role of commander extremely naturally. At one point, when there was a roof collapse within one of the sets, Matthews reportedly took charge immediately and saved the lives of his fellow crew members. The soldiers were allowed to create their own outfits and to add their own little touches to their uniforms to help them get into character. Weaver and Hen were the only two members of the cast on site for the ending weeks of production. They formed a close bond, and Hen would bring Weaver flowers when she sensed Weaver was getting lonely. Hen went through a body cast so that there would be a puppet for Weaver to carry for the more dangerous sequences. This was not a fun or easy shoot, as Cameron is an incredibly particular director. He knows exactly what he wants in a shot and will not accept excuses. He clashed with the British crew who had their own ways of working. He fired his initial director of photography, Dick Bush, the best name in history, as Bush wanted to have more control in the final look of the film. Cameron's experience with all roles of the filmmaking process, ensured that there was no way to BS him. 1st AD Derek Cracknell had the largest clashes with Cameron and the crew. He would call actresses sweetheart, and at one point, he was fired. After rumors of a strike, he was rehired and finished the picture. The veracity of the strike claims is in contention, however, as he was fired and then rapidly rehired, but the exact reasoning is not clear. The flamethrowers created for the film worked a little too well, and during the filming of a close-quarters action sequence, they actually burnt pieces of the set which created toxic fumes, causing the actors to nearly suffocate, and each time they attempted the shot, the exact same issue would occur, meaning the actors eventually just had to complete the shot with the deadly fumes in tow. Despite all of these issues, the film still stayed on budget and on schedule. The specificity of Cameron's directing style was appreciated by the special effects team, especially maestro Stan Winston. When the effects team was sculpting the new and improved chestbursters, they took little elements from the original designs in Alien and decided to expand the mobility of the creatures. They added more visible little arms for the bursters' sole appearance, and when they filmed the shot where the creature gets burnt alive, they burnt the actual puppet. The facehugger was required to have a much greater sense of mobility this time around. In order to accomplish this, they had to use multiple puppets, some of which needed up to seven puppeteers to operate. They accomplished the strangling of Sigourney using reverse photography. All of the sequences with the facehugger were accomplished using in-camera effects. The iconic alien warriors were stripped down in complexity from the first film. They were designed with the domes from the first film, however, they were deemed to be too fragile, and as such, Cameron demanded they remove them. The suits were mostly just spandex dance suits, that had pieces of alien armor built on top of them to maximize mobility. There were a number of stuntmen and dancers used to act as the warriors. There were a number of more complex puppets built of the creatures so they could achieve inhuman poses for long shots and that they could get brutally exploded by ordnance. The newest addition to the creatures was the Alien Queen. Designed by Cameron, it was brought to life with a combination of a giant 14-foot puppet and some clever miniatures. When Stan Winston was approached by Steven Spielberg to do the effects for the original Jurassic Park, Spielberg brought up the Alien Queen puppet as proof his team could pull off the effects work. The Alien Queen was an extremely complex puppet, and it took all of the effects team working in tandem to bring it to life. There was a giant hydraulic head, suit performers encased within the creature, a giant crane holding up the massive puppet, and in all, it featured up to 16 operators to bring it to life. What's better than one incredibly complex giant-sized prop? Two giant-sized incredibly complex props. The power loader, envisioned as a future replacement for forklifts, was another nightmare to figure out. It was designed so that another performer could be hidden within the loader and that Weaver would be in front of him for the final action sequence. To get the full effect of the power loader and Alien Queen battle, they used extensive miniature work. Robert and Dennis Skotak headed the miniature department. They had to oversee two full sound stages full of miniatures, and there was a massive team at work constructing a top-down view of the colony. Built at a one-fifth scale, the final atmosphere processor was six feet tall. On top of the scale, Cameron demanded weather effects, which added further difficulty to bringing the miniatures to life. Post-production was a huge crunch in order to get finished on time. Editor Ray Lovejoy had to work 17-hour days to get the film edited in time. The rushed editing affected James Horner's music production. He had a hellish time getting the final film composed, since it was not finished. He was told he would have six weeks to compose the final picture, which got cut down to three weeks due to unfinished production. The final sequence kept getting re-edited, and Horner had to stay up 36 hours straight to complete his work on the film. It caused a huge rift between Horner and Cameron. The two would not re-team until Titanic in 1995 the extremely rushed post-production affected the sound effects and dubbing teams the final picture made it to screen on time but at the cost of the production team's sanity and that my friends is the behind the scenes but let's talk about the movie itself and bring in our amazing guest today we're joined by mike the birdman dodd
1: hello mike greetings I have joined you and your squad of ultimate badasses. though we are a two-man fire team, so we're the smart gun operators of the squad. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Hell yeah, hell yeah. We'll never be found without ammo. We'll never be found without ammo. We always got some hidden away. We're just uh, too bad. <laughs> uh, so I guess to start out, uh, Mike, would you like to explain who you are and you know what the Alien franchise means to you?
1: Well, uh, for those of you that uh, don't know, I have guested on Triassic Park previously, but uh, my name is Mike the Birdman, though uh, some aspects of that will be changing in the next few weeks, so stay tuned to thisweekingeek.net for more information, but uh, I've been a podcaster and radio commentator across u.s and canadian radio for the last 13 years on this week in uh, clear channel communications the course radio network uh, cbc and i almost had my own reality show on mtv and i was on kevin smith's comic book men in season three episode seven dukes of jersey So I tend to get around, but the main reason uh, Andrew asked me to be on the show is I make it no secret on Twitter, at BirdmanDaw, by the way, uh, where I am a ridiculous Aliens fan. Uh, Aliens, to me, is one of the most important movies to me growing up. It's the movie I have one of the clearest memories of. It's the movie I most often associate with My mother, actually. It was one of the first movies we ever watched together as a family. And for me, that's a bit of a thing because we didn't spend a lot of time as a family until much, much, much uh, later in life due to a complicated relationship. So um, I was very, very big into this franchise. I've been collecting the Kenner toys for a number of years. I've had almost a complete line at one point. Um, I'm a big fan of the props of this movie. Um I have just been an alien consumer for many many years. I had Alien 3 on the Super Nintendo. I played the Aliens Hell arcade yeah. game. Hell yeah. Like there's nothing in the Aliens um extended universe I haven't done. I've played the role-playing game by Free League uh publishing which is currently in print right now. Actually, as of this recording, they just released a new adventure called Destroyer of Worlds, and there is a new box set uh, that uh, you can buy if you want the introductory uh, adventure. And the role-playing game is always cheap. It's If you go to drive through RPG, it's usually around $25, and it's really, really well done. Um, so yeah, there's... Nothing about this franchise, I probably don't know. I'm actually reading The Making of Aliens uh, from J.W. Rinsler. They actually sent, the, sent this book over specifically for this podcast. When Andrew asked me about two weeks ago, Mike, I want you on the show, what can you do? I'm like, give me a moment. So, literally, I contacted Titan Books, and because they work on a weird time schedule, and Andrew and I are up at all hours of the night anyway... I emailed England and I got a response almost immediately. And then a couple days later, I had the book and I've been going through that. And I've watched the movie several times in prep. I actually was playing Colonial Marines for the PS3 uh, for this, and uh, I am fucking ready. So let's do this. Hell yeah, hell yeah. So you have kind of like grown up with this,
0: uh, with this film in particular. This is your favorite film in the franchise
1: yes uh for me it goes aliens i might say alien but only the director's cut alien 3 resurrection and then i guess you could count some of the lesser ones although alien covenant is coming up in the ranks because i do really like that one because it does expand upon the prometheus kind of storyline and whatever ridley scott added to the xenomorph kind of mythos there which is a completely different conversation Um, right it is it is
0: although you bring up the name
1: xenomorph and i think that's fascinating
0: that it's even attached to this creature because it's actually kind of a general term and they even like when they introduce it in this movie they're not talking about these specific creatures they're like talking about the bugs
1: yeah um it's actually funny the term xenomorph wasn't coined by ridley it was coined by cameron he wrote a he wrote a story called mother and when he did the when he was given the screen or when he was given the treatment for this movie it was told here make sovereign comfort and the magnificent seven but with ripley and soldiers so he's like okay yeah sure so he had another story called mother and it was about, like, a far-off kind of mining colony. There were these creatures. So he just took Ripley and the soldiers and dropped them into his story. But he kept the name Xenomorphs from his story and plopped that into the um, alien kind of mythos. And it's carried uh, forward into everything else. Um, right. So I found that tremendously interesting while I was uh, kind of doing research for this. Like, Cameron really sh- – I mean, Ridley Scott and Dan O'Bannon really – set things forward for the alien universe but cameron and his set designers and, and everybody else made the aliens worlds come alive i mean the first two films in this franchise set the tone for every piece of extended universe material lore movies that has come since then and i'm astounded at how much this world feels real because cameron as we as you discussed during your intro does a lot of stuff in camera he's a very big fan of practical effects i mean he doesn't like doing um blue screen or green screen because it fucks with certain camera things so you have to change like uh, kind of focal lengths and camera lenses and all that stuff so if you can do it in camera it will almost always look better and there was there's a very very famous story where gail ann heard is in a meeting with the fox executives and they're bitching about the budget or something and the producer or one of the fox execs is like well where's all this money going you built this giant set i haven't seen one effect shot yet and she kind of smiles at him says that is an effect shot and he's like oh
0: Um. (laughs) yeah that was great because apparently when they were building the sets they would actually do it in front of the camera in order to yeah in order to make sure that it was like believable and also to save time because like yeah everybody was on crunch for this movie and it's kind of amazing that it turned out just so well given how how little time and a relatively small budget like this was not a huge budget even at the time um and i think uh one of the strength of cameron is that he really knows how to film and work with effects guys really well and that pretty much made it so that you don't have to do a, a, a crap ton of reshoots because you already know how to film around effects and that comes from his time as a, like a, in the art department but also um you know i watched uh, piranha 2 the spawning in preparation for this which is you know the the piranha sequel directed by cameron And regardless of what else you can say about that movie is the effects are filmed amazingly in that you cannot see all the strings and you, and you, you can tell that he like has an awareness of the craft.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, one of the stories that I'm reading in this book, Cameron snuck in to edit Piranha 2 to make it look not like shit because the original producer fired the director and he went in on it and did a bunch of things to it so it would look better. So Cameron's dedication to his projects are amazing. And the people he brought over as part of the special effects team, uh, the Skotak brothers who worked with him at new world pictures, they are phenomenal workers. And considering they come from like the Roger Corman era, I'm really surprised. And I guess when, when you give people enough of a, a budget, they can create magic because Fox didn't want to give these guys a whole lot of money. I mean, there was talk of the budget at one time being 35 million. And Fox was like, "Ha, yeah, no. Um, eventually they got the budget at around 16 million. I think it was maybe a little bit more um, kind of later on. I mean, at one point, as you mentioned during your intro there, they were talking to, they, th- like they didn't even have Sigourney Weaver signed for like the longest time. And this movie would not work without her. And Cameron, when he wrote the movie, He's like, I'm not doing it without her. So you see the levels of perfection with him, because literally one of the quotes I read, and it's in the audio commentary and it's in the documentary as well. You can't bullshit this guy because he's done every single job and he's done it well. Yes, yes. And that's, you know, I uh, I think because they come from the
0: Corman uh, era is why they have uh, such a good way to do effects on the cheap. Because another movie I watched, I watched Forbidden Worlds, and that movie has so much of the DNA of aliens in it. And you can really tell that the same uh, effects guys, like the Skotaks, worked on that film because the way that they kind of like explore the world, and the way they set up the entrances to like this giant pyramid uh space pyramid and uh you know the movie's terrible but all of the effect stuff is is really remarkable and really good so he he had an eye for Cameron really had an eye for talent and it seemed like he was he's one of those people who uh you know if you're good to him he'll be good to you uh and he he brought all these people along with him for the journey and uh that's kind of rare especially Especially in the movie industry where it can often be, you know, step on step on a guy's head in order to get a a league up.
1: Well, yeah, like him and uh, Galeanne Hurd, they knew how to work together and Hurd had had success producing the Terminator. And because when Cameron signed on with Brandywine and Fox, he's like, you bring me and her or you don't do this at all. And they're like, well, but she's unknown. She's untested. And there's a story in the book, and I'm trying to remember it right, but it's something like, call my references and they'll tell you that I'm good, like um, stuff like that. And I think they did, if if I'm recalling that section right. But regardless, I mean, she's been massively successful. So you see, even early on. She knows what she's doing. She knows how to get the best talent, the best people to get Cameron the job that he wanted done. And having Stan Winston be a massive cheerleader for everybody, especially from his work on the Terminator really helped. Like every section was firing here. And even when you mentioned James Horner, when like he came back um, getting the right score, cause um, like there was a point where uh, Gale was going to fire him at one point. And he was like – and Gail's like, well, and I I can't do it in this amount of time. And then Gail says, well, then we'll find someone who can. And Horner says – and I love this quote – I'd love to meet him because he could teach me a thing or two. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: was really blown away by that quote. And, I mean, hearing that from Horner, it's – I wonder if that, like, you know, when you're watching the movie and the the music is so strong – And it presents such a frenetic pace. And I wonder if that's almost like, you know, because he was so close to the wire, it feels even stressful in the music. And it works so well on these stressful scenes where they're getting, like, surrounded and the aliens are approaching. And, like, I wonder if it wasn't just him watching the movie. It was just him how he was feeling in doing this project that really kind of uh, made it what it is. Yeah it's such a famous score like it's amazing it's one of the best it's one of the best action scores uh, i've ever heard and um it's it's used they mentioned in the commentary that it's used in uh in action films all the time like yep. it's a huge like trailers especially like trailers use the the cues from horner so often and he i did he win the academy award i know he was nominated i believe
1: he won the academy award for this that um, i'm not 100 percent sure on i'm although what's something to point out with this movie and you've kind of you've kind of talked around it you talk about score one of my one of the things that i noticed especially when i went to college and i took film uh for my first year until i started to specialize in radio they told me to pay attention to sound design and when i was in college i bought myself my first surround sound system And at that time, it was only the Blu-rays that, or not the Blu-rays, the DVD set that was out from like 2004. So I'm listening to the Aliens um, 5.1 surround soundtrack, and you do not appreciate just how beautiful the sound editing and the sound effects are in this movie. Like, one of my all-time favorite sound effects of all time. There are two, the pulse rifle firing, because it's so iconic to sci-fi it is, and the motion tracker.
0: Yes. Yeah. And like, you know, honestly, those two elements that you just talked about and the sound, um, it pretty much built every sci-fi video game afterwards. Like, Absolutely. um, if you played Halo, like so much of Halo is just alien so much of that like it's also got a lot of predator in it but more aliens than anything Um, especially when you know little things like the way that the the pilot of in halo the pelican talks is exactly like the pilot of the dropship talks in this movie and like if you go and look through the halo like just achievement lists you see a bajillion aliens references and that motion tracker that motion tracker is in all pretty much all modern video games if they're in a sci-fi era and um i think that's one of the things that's a little underappreciated about aliens specifically uh is that it, it pretty much built sci-fi video gaming uh 100
1: yeah like there's so much dna you can trace back to this movie it is a little ridiculous i want to i want to say there was a pretty good piece on ign or maybe i i know it's on youtube but it it shows how you can link back everything i don't know whether i'm remembering it right but you're right it talks about the pulse rifle it talks about the motion tracker and there's just so much dna from aliens that is in the modern sci-fi video game and the modern sci-fi f uh fps that it's we wouldn't have a lot of our modern action type sci-fi movies and entertainment without aliens like this was a sci-fi combat picture like there had been elements in star wars or yeah they're fighting stormtroopers and there's blasters firing but you didn't see boots on the ground soldiers and there's a difference b- between a stormtrooper and a real mud-on-the-face marine that's Clean, um uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Um, I just want to say that's uh, very
0: emblematic of the entire Aliens franchise. And the reason why I like Alien as a franchise so well is because it always is focusing on one, a super shitty mega corporation that fucks over everyone. So there's like this anti capitalist little thing in it. And also, uh, all of the main characters. Uh, aside from some of the the later Scott films, but all of the ones that really made a huge impact on me personally, they involve the working class, whether that's the grunts or whether that's just a whole bunch of miners who accidentally, like, you know, space miners, not like children, uh, that come across uh, an alien vessel as in the first movie. And it's very much focused on the working class. So that boots on the ground that you mentioned is uh, is extremely important. Also, um, I well mentioned that, It got nominated for seven Academy Awards, so the original score was nominated, but it only won the Academy Awards for sound effect editing and visual effects. So,
1: And that was a first for a horror movie, really. I mean, a sci-fi horror movie. And it's, like I said, it's one of the most important movies ever made. Um, I will fight anybody in the street in my wheelchair who says different. Um, And yeah, like, there's just so much has been influenced since so many directors have got into the genre because of James Cameron. Um, Some of my favorite movies of all time are Cameron. And obviously I'm like, Oh my God, Cameron. Oh, I mean, he's got his flaws because this is a guy, as we've discussed, he expects perfection. And there's a rule on set. If I am in the lighting department, don't touch my lights. Cameron would move your lights because he knows how to do your job, um, or if he's like, "Oh man, I gotta run a, a cable. I gotta wait for a set dresser to come." Ah, fuck it, I'm just gonna punch a hole through that wall. He would do it, um, much to everybody's like, "Please stop." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, there's so much that this movie has influenced and made a staple of sci-fi sci-fi genre making creature design special effects weaponry um and there's so many little stories that if you watch the documentary superior firepower if you want if you listen to the 2003 uh audio commentary you gain a lot of insight that book i mentioned the making of aliens by jw rinsler there's also a really fantastic youtube channel and i want to send a huge shout out to him and his channel is called alien theory and i think he's canadian but i'm not 100 sure on that i want to say i saw something somewhere that he's from winnipeg so if i'm right yay if i'm not go you anyway um merchandising has also been huge with this franchise too like oh my god um but i'm getting off track here so andrew where are we going next
0: i want to talk about so you know i before we get into the effects and get deep into that hole i want to stop and just kind of talk about the cast because every single member of this cast is doing an exceptional job And I know uh, you in particular, uh, you love Bill Paxton in this movie.
1: Oh my god, like, so much of my DNA as a person is Hudson. It's ridiculous. I love the character. Bill Paxton obviously worked with, like, Cameron before in the first uh, Terminator, and then he was in this, and then he was later on killed by a predator in Predator 2. So he's the only person who's been killed by an alien, a predator, and a Terminator. Uh, of all things so he shares that distinction um michael bean uh who plays corporal hicks love him um although as you mentioned during the intro he did replace james remar who was only on set for a couple of days james remar is in the finished movie so okay i thought so because he's he like when they first enter the
0: colony and they are going through the uh sets like um really early on when they very first open that door and go through is that where he's in is no. he one of the marines no oh okay
1: what? okay so when they enter the atmosphere processor and they go into the hive and there's that big wide shot and you see all the secreted resin on the ceiling from the back that's remar now more trivia that you didn't know. Okay, so in the movie, Hicks's armor has a heart and lock and key on it. Before production started, Cameron wanted everybody to customize their armor. Put something on it that means something to you. Like for example, Bill Paxson's armor has the name of his, of his then-girlfriend, now-wife, Louise. Or Contents Under Pressure. Um, stuff like that. Like They were allowed to make it their own remars which was hicks customized his armor with a, with a heart and lock on it did you know hicks hicks was married
0: oh yes i did and the only reason i knew this is because um i there's a there's a pretty great uh, anthology book it's called aliens uh, uh, sorry
1: I think it's called Bug Hunt, right? Yes,
0: that's it. Aliens Bug Hunt. And it's an anthology that has all of these little vignettes of, you know, of these characters. And one of them um, is a story focused on Hicks and his wife. And I believe she dies in the story before he's on the mission.
1: Yeah, she um, dies on some moon. She's sent out on some investigation where they find some creature. But they get ambushed, she dies, they come out on mission a couple years later to find the bodies preserved, and he's like, well, I want to find out who killed you. And then it's theorized in the fan community that maybe he volunteered to go on the mission to LV-426, also known as Archon or Archeron or whatever, um, because maybe whatever killed her could be there
0: right so i guess the the lock on the heart then kind of like is representative of like the heartbreak and then he's like not open anymore and then exactly. he's kind of like locked down his emotions and then uh that tracks that tracks that's fascinating because that also goes with a little bit of his fearlessness because he doesn't have anything to lose that's why he can just fall asleep on the airdrops and and all of those little details so that's really really smart uh, that is funny, though, because I remember hearing Bean in the in one of the docs talk about how he didn't particularly understand why the heart was there at first, because he's like, oh, it would just be like a real easy target if someone was trying to aim at you. Uh, <laughs> but when you really kind of examine it and I, and I guess that's like, you know, people adding on to it after the fact, like, was that part of Hicks's ki- character from conception or was that like a fun thing that people added afterwards?
1: i'm not i'm not 100 i'm not 100 sure on that i mean i know it's in bug hunt but obviously anything that's in novels do you consider that canon it's kind of like with star wars and star trek it's whatever the controlling corporation decides is canon because if you really want to get technical Aliens Colonial Marines is canon and that means Hicks is nope, somehow nope. alive. No, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I refuse to believe that one. That game does not exist. It went into space.
0: I hate the story of that game. Um, I don't know, it just bugs me. Cause like I love uh I love Hicks and I, I love Newt and I love Bishop, but I and I it t- took me a long time to just get over the fact that they died in uh in Alien Three at the start of Alien Three. Um, but I do think that gives such like a poignant kind of like a heartbreak to that movie um, that we will eventually talk about that movie because um, you know that movie does predate Jurassic Park so that will be covered here eventually uh, and I and it will be an interesting discussion when we when we do get to that movie but um, have you read any of the very early Dark Horse comics as well that kind of uh, I... explore Newt
1: and uh, Hicks a little bit more I remember reading them briefly as a child because i grew up in the 80s and 90s i have read summaries over the years like the like the xenopedia i think is what it's called is a wonderful resource oh yeah oh i think i think they're getting reprinted under marvel next year they they are the one of the things that's kind of
0: dumb about the reprints is that they edit out like they change the character names so that it can so that they can still kind of make it in canon with alien 3 which it doesn't it wouldn't work even like so it's characters that are obviously hicks and newt but they have different names in order to compensate for the fact that they uh were not alive at that point in the alien timeline so they try to revision this history yet but it's literally just name changes so all the flashbacks are still obviously from aliens so you're just like what why did they why did they do this this just seems silly because the 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 original comics themselves are actually quite good and do offer a very fascinating kind of extra exploration into uh into both of those characters um But I guess, sorry, we are getting into the reads. That's one of the things about the Alien franchise um, is that, you know, you can pick one character and one little thing and just talk for 20 hours. Um, To be honest, it's my favorite sci-fi franchise and probably one of my favorite universes ever uh, just because I love the world and I love to inhabit all of this stuff. So, uh, yeah, we're going to probably get on some tangents, probably get on some tangents. But um, along with that, let's kind of uh, go back to the characters and the cast in hand. What do you think of Lance Hendrickson as Bishop? And how do you feel about, uh, I guess, the themes of artificial intelligence in the Alien franchise?
1: Looking at the casting for Lance Hendrickson is interesting because he was originally supposed to be the Terminator because he had this very unique, very cold detached look and obviously he didn't get cast as the terminator but he was one of the detectives who was funny and when cameron cast him as bishop he took the role remarkably seriously and watching hendrickson portray a new synthetic who was a who was an evolution of ian holmes character in the first alien ash you don't know what to expect because in the alien world, synthetic equals bad, which in the Prometheus movies, yeah, they took that a little too fucking far. Um, but sidebar um, Henderson gives su- or Hen- Hendrickson gives such a powerful and emotive performance, despite being a synthetic person, you can see the commitment he brought to the role. In fact, fun story. I did mention this on Twitter. So, bishop's knife trick where he spreads his hand out on the table and you put the knife between each finger when i saw that when i was a kid i said i'm gonna learn that
0: oh no
1: so yeah i've been practicing that knife trick since about 1988 i haven't been able to do it fast in a number of years but for a long time, I used to be able to keep it up super quick. I'd only had a few accidents. Not going through a knuckle or a finger, thankfully. I've had a few nicks. But uh, as I'm recording this podcast, I'm actually playing with a cold steel um, cairn bit knife. Uh, it's a training knife with a blunt edge. It's made out of plastic. Don't worry, I can't hurt myself. But... Um, uh, Hendrickson used to travel with a suitcase full of knives and so he could practice this. And I always admired that commitment. And when I heard that story at some point in the 90s, I'm thinking, I can do that. If Bishop can do it, I can do it. Um, so yeah, I, I'm uh, pretty hardcore. Um, and Hendrickson's uh, performance in this, as he goes through the story, you see the synthetic person become, more human because he is more advanced than the david and what was the other one called in uh covenant or whatever
0: oh wasn't he like frank like it was a really it was a really lame name it was like something very very basic
1: yeah so from those series of androids you see that the more human side of bishop come out and even in alien 3 when he becomes michael bishop that's a continuation Hendrick's Hendrickson has this amazing ability to just really absorb himself into a role and I've always loved his performances throughout the years like one role nobody talks about about uh, Hendrickson is he did a television series in the late 90s early 2000s called um Millennium and it's really damn good and that was uh a spinoff ish of Chris Carter's uh X Files. They exist in the same universe. Um, but yeah, like I really, really liked him. Another person that I liked, um, and it's and he's really come to my attention recently, is is uh Bill Hope. Bill Hope plays oh. Gorman.
0: He's also a Canadian, I believe. I believe he's yeah. also a Canadian.
1: Yeah, he's either Canadian or English. I'm not sure. But I heard him in the audible.com's uh adaptation of neil gaiman's the sandman and he plays dr destiny who's this like d-list yeah he's like this d-list justice society villain but he almost kills the lord of dreams um morpheus uh because reasons but i'm like that's fucking gorman and like i'm just so impressed by him like each of the actors in from this cast whenever they do get a chance to do something that is very different i'm i'm just so surprised by the amount of talent here i mean there are some actors i wish i'd seen more stuff in like mark um ralston who plays drake i've only ever seen him in low rent action movie stuff
0: that's really a shame because he he has such, like, a great character, right? He doesn't do a lot. Like, he doesn't get a lot to say, but he expresses things visually really well. And the emotions on his face uh, really say a lot more than, you know, any dialogue could. One of my favorite moments of him is when he's told to, like, reconfigure his camera and he just bashes the camera on the side, like on the on a uh, like metal piece, and then just gives the like the meanest look to Gorman, and you're like, "Yep, that says everything I need to know about this character."
1: Yeah, like there's so much physical performance in some of these characters that. I wanted to learn more about the actresses and another James Cameron actress who pops up in some of his stuff was Jeanette Goldstein, who we know plays Vasquez. And obviously she's playing a Latino character, despite being redheaded and freckled. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so funny because, you know, uh, growing up, like, uh, I mean, uh, this is going to speak to my own naivety more than anything, but I, I had no idea. uh, And, and she scarred me for life in Terminator 2 when, because she plays the, the stepmom in Terminator 2 who gets taken over by the T-1000 and uh, stabs a man while he's drinking milk. And uh, I never drank milk out of the carton for many years after that because um,
1: that was
0: the scariest thing I've ever seen.
1: But yeah, like I love her performance because again, so transformative and there is a very famous story where she showed up to the movie thinking it was entirely something different. She thought it was about alien being like a different drama or something.
0: Wait, so like as in like that line that um you know that Paxton delivers about I th- like I think her that's missing... based on
1: a real story. I really think so. If oh, if I'm remembering it right. Uh, you know that's
0: amazing that's that's a that is that is so funny Uh, i think um you know sometimes people go overboard in pre-production trying to get actors to have a sense of cohesion but um i think the cast really works well together because they spent those two weeks training um and i think it did pay off Um, in a a huge way Uh, I think like Apone especially like taking the Al Lewis sorry no it's not Al Lewis Al Matthews Al Matthews Uh, he he manages to take control uh, so well and that that had to just happen and get ingrained from you know from all those years of training
1: well yeah like he throws off that air of authority and it's not a authority where you're afraid It's a, it's an authority you respect, but if you step out of line with insubordination, you'll fucking know about it. And that's the thing when, when you watch uh, Al Matthews as a pwn interact with Hicks on the flight deck of the Sulaco, he's talking with Ripley and Hicks and he says, well, I don't know. Is there anything you can do? And she steps in, into the power loader and loads up that giant missile or no, that giant crate is like, where do you want it? And he's like, Bay 12, please. And you get that sense like, OK, you've demonstrated to me what what you can do. And it, it feels so natural. The the thing that makes Aliens work too as a movie, cast chemistry, everybody feels natural. I mean, even side characters like um, uh, Wisbowski, who doesn't get much of a line, Frost, who only has a couple of one-liners but yeah, feels natural.
0: He, yeah, he feels real natural. Like, I, I don't know what it is, but every time, uh, you know, the the movie happens and Frost dies, there's some, like, I get an emotional reaction because, I don't know, his character just has a presence that I really enjoy.
1: Yeah, plus uh, getting flamethrown the death is not how I'd like oh, to go. No, yeah. oh, no, it's not, it's not, it's not how I would like to go either. And I think
0: the willingness to make you um, be ingrained and care about these characters and then kill them um, really makes a big impact and makes everything have a little bit more weight, which, yeah. uh, which is, works.
1: I mean, there's something about that scene when they attack the hive and that's very much the Vietnam influence there. Like we've got the superior firepower. We're going to kick your friggin' ass. And they get owned. Like when Ripley says, Hey, you fire your weapons in there, you're going to rupture the cooling tanks. And Gorman's like, well, what's the big deal? Um, Thermo-nu- nuclear explosion adios muchachos um and frost has to carry the bag so they're all disarmed except for hicks and their sidearms and whoever's carrying flame units um so when frost dies gets thrown over the edge uh hicks pulls aside with uh Wizbowski, and crow gets thrown by the ammo explosion I, I, it took me years to realize what killed him. I thought it was the ammo exploding into his chest or something. It's the force of the explosion snapping his neck. Oh, this, yeah, that'd do it. Like, think about this. This is a movie where you see the Marines get taken out by friendly fire. I've never seen that happen before. And not to good guys against what essentially are... Monsters like they're creatures, they're mindless insectoid creatures. But that's the thing the xenomorph does have a primal intelligence, as directed by the queen. And there's something about that hive scene, watching everybody react, feeling the tension like, there's something just so believable about the atmosphere watching Drake and Vasquez and everybody else just work together, move as a real combat unit that I love. And everybody here never feels it never feels phony. And I found out one of the actors, I think it was it was either the guy that played Wasbowski or Crow. It was one of the two, was actually a British SAS member. Oh. So yeah, so there were real military people in this, which I think is tremendously cool. Um and uh, obviously uh, Al Matthews was a Vietnam vet who became like a radio disc jockey. You'd never know it. Um, I'm really sad that he's gone. He's been a guy that I would have loved to have talked to before he passed away.
0: Yeah, he must have had just a, just a fascinating, fascinating life. I think one of, the, one of the, the most interesting things about Aliens is that it even enhances characters from the original... Uh, and gives you added information on on them. Uh, You think of when you get to see the personnel files uh, of all of these different characters from the first movie, um, if you pay attention, there's actually quite a bit of lore in there that actually really gets you to have a better understanding of the characters from Alien. And I think one of the most interesting things, and I think this is actually kind of, I would be very interested into who wrote those five do you do you find anything about who actually wrote
1: the personnel files like was that cameron i don't recall off the top of my head um but the thing that you're talking about and this blew my mind when i found out uh the character of lambert played by veronica cartwright in the first alien is transgendered. Now, does that mean she was inter or, or she was intersexed either way or she was intersect. Yeah. Yeah. Something has changed. It says she was part of a certain surgery, male to female. So did she transition? Was this an at birth thing? Who knows? But it's also the aliens universe where this probably isn't a big deal. Right. Yeah.
0: And that's one of the things I was, uh, you know, I think there is a little bit of that going into the film especially if Cameron did in fact write that sequence because you even get like you have a character talk about their preferred pronouns like Bishop literally talks about what he prefers to be referred to as in that scene and you know with that extra level of like reading the personnel files from Lambert I do think that's kind of a very fascinating uh, undercurrent for the film to kind of just dig into it more and you know it, it it never really strikes you unless you go in the back and and read that and you think um so many movies there are so many movies out there where uh you'll get uh headlines uh i think of like old movies where they'll show a newspaper. And they'll show like a headline and all of that. If you pause those movies, you'll just find out the actual dialogue is gobbledygook. And the headline is the only thing they actually wrote. Whereas in this movie, they actually wrote all of those things in the background that you wouldn't necessarily see unless you've seen it like 17 times. And honestly, I imagine back in the VHS days, that was not readable. Like, yeah. I bet you that was like impossible to read until the Blu-ray days. So, or Laserdiscs. Level- Oh yeah, sorry, the Laserdisc. Yeah, I, I should know because there's a whole bunch of Laserdisc special features archived on that Blu-ray and I watched all of those too and I was like, damn, there's so much on this Blu-ray. Um, Yeah, so it's it's really fascinating that they bothered to, to do that extra work.
1: Yeah, like that's one thing that the Aliens franchise especially does in the first two movies, not so much in three and four. Their world building is fantastic and they don't drag you down with X position if you want to look for it it's there um like in alien we just know that it's a huge future this nameless corporation i don't even think they named it whalen utah i think they just called it the company um and you just go to wherever they tell you in this one they build it in they they mention other uh bodies like the like the international commerce commission or the ICC they speak about the US colonial marines and stuff like that and if you read some of the expanded lore they explain like there are factions in the alien universe it's not just earth there's the union of progressive peoples and stuff like that which is the old uh, kind of soviet block Wayland yutani is with a, an English-Japanese coalition the there's I forget what the earth faction is called off the top of my head Um, I think it's like the three nations or something. I don't know, but, uh, point I'm trying to get across is the lore is there if you want it, but it's not necessary, but it's nice to have anyway. And it's nice to have these characters explored because there's stuff there on Dallas, there's stuff there on, um, Lambert. And I'm glad people are kind of noticing. And when you mentioned the, um, kind of pronoun thing. I'm glad people are having this conversation, even if it does take like 30 years later, but still that's, that is progress. And the fact that it was there from the beginning, again, progress, and they didn't have to put it in and it's not politicizing anything. It's just, they've always been here right them.
0: yeah no exactly exactly like so often uh you know people go oh you're putting politics in this and it's like that's just people's lives that's like that's you know that's how they live and that's what they do and that they exist and they've always been here and it just you weren't paying attention that's the only thing um so yeah so those conversations are, are fascinating uh, before again i'm just i keep teasing the effects they're looming on the horizon before we get into that i want to talk about the different cuts and which version of the film you prefer Uh, I personally, director's cut all the way. Uh, I had never even, I had never even seen the theatrical cut to be honest until I watched it
1: with commentary a few nights ago. And that was my first time seeing the theatrical. Um, I grew up with the theatrical. I didn't see the special edition until the, probably the two thousands when I got my first uh, box set in 2004, I think is when Fox put it out. Um, but yeah, I don't consider anything else to be the true vision of cameron actually looking back at some of the scripts uh things because in the book the making of the aliens they show the script in process at points and certain scenes like the sentry gun have been there burke's scene which is a very famous scene which i wish they had found a way to insert that because it's a deleted scene why not just put it in um and that, but, that's a
0: scene where Burke blows up because, you know, Ripley gives him the grenade and then he kills himself kind of thing. Is that what yeah. you're talking about? Yeah. And, there,
1: and there, there's even a little piece of dialogue that gets cut and it expands the lore in a way you wouldn't expect. And they talk about um, a, they're talking about face huggers. They talk about a doctor, Dr. Skotek, and he's giving oh. <laughs> this he's giving this like audio log. And he's talking about being implanted by the face hugger and the life cycle, and he says, even if we remove the face hugger and can successfully remove the embryo from you, you're dead anyway, because the alien's placenta is cancerous. You're dead oh, once you are infected. You're fucking dead. And That's even fascinating. And even. Oh, sorry, Andrews. I'm oh, sorry,
0: because I was going to say, so in one of the more recent books, the more recent Alien books, Alien Cold Forge, um, they examine um, it being less about eggs, them implanting direct eggs, as them implanting, like, cellular,
1: yes. uh, like, pretty much
0: an infection. And that actually, I guess that was always in the
1: franchise, and they never really, like, said it out right. So that's actually awesome. They actually kind of do, because I know what you're talking about in Alien... They talk about when Dallas is cocooned, and he starts and it looks like he's transforming. Right in in the role playing game, they actually expand upon that, and that's a process where the drone infects you with a um, some kind of a infection, I guess, and it transforms you into an egg over the course of so long. So the hive can always continue. So if there's no queen and the drone can biologically, if, if the drone biologically knows that it can transform you into kind of a ovomorph stage. So if, if a lone drone stings a person and is cocooned, they'll transform into an egg and begin the cycle again until a new hive can be grown. And then there's different types of aliens because there's your drone, which is what we saw in Alien. There's the warriors, which we saw in um, in Aliens. We also saw um, technically there's one called a stalker, where Ripley is in the hive and the aliens are jumping back and forth. That's a different that's a different type. And there's another one which I guess it's not so much it's explained in the role playing game. And I guess you can argue it's in aliens. One called a Praetorian.
0: Oh, the ones that guard the queen. Yes. Queen alien. Yeah. Yeah. The
1: the big motherfuckers that are fed um, the Royal jelly until they reach a certain stage. And then they're basically tanks. Um, So yeah, like it's very fascinating to look at the alien life cycle, but just realizing the hive can always continue no matter what. That's why these things are such, a threat, uh, to pretty much biological life everywhere, and I still don't like the fact what what Prometheus did with it. But again, that will probably be at the end of this podcast. Uh, yeah, exactly. There there <laughs> are
0: stuff to talk about the wider franchise. One of the the one of the weirdest deleted scenes in that it's not it's not weird it makes sense in the course of the movie but it would actually be repeated is that there's that sequence uh, where it just kind of shows the colony living as is and you get those two characters like talking over coffee and they're like oh same question every time i ask them a question i get the same answer don't ask uh, that scene pretty much verbatim is repeated in terminator 2 and I believe it also only appears in Terminator 2 Special Edition. Um, so it's a weird, I guess that exchange, uh, you know, that corporate exchange uh, made a big impact on Cameron and he wanted to include it in something. And uh, it reared its head uh, nearly exactly uh, in a scene where Cyberdyne systems employees are talking to each other.
1: Now, it's uh, funny, that character that actually says that line in Aliens... Um, lie Decker. He was supposed to be a Marine and was a Marine for the longest time. He was like a Marine scientist who, w- who was like an expert on xenobiology. And uh, yeah, so I was actually kind of surprised that that character or that character name has survived through several drafts of the script. Yeah, that's, that is, that is very, that is very wild. That's so, so fascinating. And that entire thing That entire scene where they're where they're showing the the kids playing in the hallway, they're like, it takes two weeks to get a message out here. Don't ask. That entire scene, Cameron fought to keep, but obviously he lost. But I think it does add a little bit more to the uh movie overall. And in fact, in one of the earlier drafts of of the script, Um, it's shown that the the Jordans go out, find the derelict spacecraft, and they couldn't find it because there was like a volcanic um, eruption and it changed the beacon that was on the alien derelict. So unless you knew where to look, you wouldn't find it. So after the Jordans get attacked, the colony's like, oh shit, we should go see what that is. And hilarity ensues. Um, Another version- so Sorry. was
0: the, uh, no, no, no. I just, uh, this is just a, this is just a being a nerd question. Uh, was the queen always in the elect in stasis or is the queen one of the, the, the face hugged? Um, yes.
1: As far as I can tell, she was one of the new ones because when the way they describe it in one of the earlier drafts is the alien eggs are, they activate by heat and motion. So those eggs are permanently in stasis unless you come near them. So when the first queen or when the first people from the alien uh, from the colony got infected and they and the chest bursters escaped into the ducks and the alien started molting, that's when the hive started building. So so this wasn't a fast process, but it wasn't a slow process either, because I think the colony falls over the course of like a couple of days to like a week. So um, that like one of the explanations I've seen is when the Marines are going into the hive for, for for the assault on the atmosphere processor, you notice a lot of skeletons are in are in the wall. There's a lot of desiccated bodies, and that's because the aliens have gone dormant because they've run out of material like there's there's no new hosts. There's no new food, really. So they're going to sleep for a while. And aliens can survive a very, very, very long... I don't think they're ever given a lifespan. Like, I think they're pretty much effectively immortal as long as I don't... Some outside force doesn't fuck with them.
0: Yeah, yeah, that pretty much tracks... Again, of course, going for things that are, like, expanded universe rather than in the films itself. But the, the when the, uh, the colony is, like, nuked... Uh, And that the atmosphere is processed or blows up. There is one of the books uh, that got turned into an audible audio drama, which is which is fascinating. That takes place like I would say like generations upon generations later where there's a distant relative of Ripley um, who pretty much gets charged with all of the company money that she lost um so they pretty much just uh they go to this guy and they're like yeah you owe uh, all the damage from the nostromo blowing up you you owe all the money from this colony that got exploded uh and also there's weird things happening at this colony we need you to go and ex- explore it and if you do we'll kind of erase some of your debts um and they actually go to lv426 and one of the things about um you know that colony is that deep deep underground under all this ash and uh, and millions of years well not millions it's like thousands of years or whatever um generations later uh the the aliens are still there they're just dormant and it's actually the um the derelict ship is where they're dormant at so it makes a little bit more sense than uh if they were in the actual you know the processor itself so they do kind of set that up in some of the lore uh in some fascinating ways
1: mm mm-hmm. um so where do we want to go next? Because we can talk about anything. So you oh, hit I me know. with let's, hit me with with like any category, man. I'm ready. Let
0: Let's go to the effects, cause it's amazing. And I so one of the things that I just I just have to say off the bat, I thought there was a lot more stop motion in this movie than there is. Um, and there's some arguments as to whether or not there's stop motion at all. The only uh, Scene that I've seen referenced uh, with stop motion, and I wasn't able to find out who would have animated that or I would have credited them uh, directly. Uh, is the very final scene where the alien queen is spaced. Um, I, there was uh, one of the documentaries talked about how that was stop motion, but I thought that, you know, I thought that scene with the face hugger in the lab when it's super mobile was done with some stop motion. I thought parts of the queen was done with parts of stop motion just because of how fluid the puppetry is. And there's so many creative ways they, they achieved it. Like the uh, the very mobile face hugger in the lab was kind of accomplished with like a pull, pull toy. And like somebody was pulling it uh, and the string was hidden and it just like moved towards you. And that's like a simple thing that looks so good on screen. And, uh, same with the alien queen, like the puppeteering for her is just so amazing that I thought there had to be some kind of external animation, but there wasn't.
1: Yeah. Like a lot of this stuff was accomplished in camera, either via miniatures, force, force, force perspective, rear projection, front projection, like there's one effect and it's very, very small when you're coming into the colony and you see a tractor and you see a tractor with a tarp on it and it's just blowing in the wind that's an effect shot i had no idea and what do i mean by that that's literally a miniature with a miniature tarp and they undercranked the camera so it looks looks like hurricane force winds what and, really? yeah yeah i'm like really yeah like that's a full size guy standing next to something and that's a miniature like the special effects in this movie and the effects team from top to bottom phenomenal like there is so much of this you just you don't realize you're looking at a special effect like the only one that's really noticeable and you really gotta look for it is the um hypersleep chambers because they do that with mirrors because there's like why is there two vasquez's um but yeah like there's so many little things you just don't No. And I love it. And how you were mentioning about the alien suits, there are different kinds of ones. There are ones that you mentioned, they're just black spandex and some appliances. Some of the other ones are really, really detailed, but they're still just as active. And I think that was done by obviously Stan Winston, but also Tom Woodruff Jr., had a lot of input to do stuff and like his costume department did some pretty amazing things um
0: yeah truly truly the what there were a few um set pieces and effects work that was actually repurposed from other films but they're like very slight things like in the very first scene when they kind of rescue and board ripley's ship
1: the narcissus yeah
0: yeah, the narcissus which by the way uh talk about effects work they had to completely recreate the interiors of the narcissus because they had no blueprints and they had no idea where the original prop was. So they had to completely retool and remake the Narcissus from scratch, and they meticulously watched the film in order to just kind of get a good idea of the layout and recreate it, which is kind of amazing. Um, But there's a sequence when they come in, the salvage team comes in with the uh, suits, and those suits are apparently retooled uh, suits from the movie Outland, um and there's another scene which is like it's such a it's very bizarre i don't really know why they bothered to reuse it other than it does help kind of build the scenery uh near that scene where you're talking about with the tarp um there is another piece of machinery that is like a um like it looks like a crane with a claw on it and that crane with a claw on it is the same one that was used in the movie called Saturn 3 um and they just had it sitting around and they repurposed it to be part of the construction uh construction work so uh even the things that they repurposed they did such a great job like you i never would have known and uh you know you know those are both movies that i at least have some knowledge of whether or not i've actually seen it all the way through Is
1: another question but anyways (laughs) one of the things that i love about the narcissus rescue is one of the stories from the audio commentary, I think from the 2003 one, is Galeanne Heard uh, was telling a story about James Cameron wanted a laser arm. And she said, if you want the laser arm, you're going to have to pay for it. He did. Yeah, that's insane. That's, that's like, so again, cool. That is dedication to your craft. Truly, truly. Uh, you know, it's
0: it's little things like that that showed... That, you know, he was a hard-ass, he was kind of a jackass to certain people on set. Like, he would do things that, like, you know, you're probably not recommended to, but... It's all in service of the movie, and it's nothing like, you know, there are like hella abusive directors out there, right? Like this guy is just like a boss that you kind of would probably not want to have. He's not an abusive person. It's just a little uh, a little hectic with him on set because you can't bullshit him, and he knows exactly what he's doing and exactly what he wants and will do whatever it takes to get it. Um, and, uh, that's really kind of, uh, very fascinating that everything that he did was in service of the final film. Um, and it all shows, uh, cause it was clearly all worth it because it's like one of the most influential films of all time. And, you know, that comes down to a level of care and a level of intentionality that really helped the final picture.
1: One of the things that I love and, it's no huge fan or no huge surprise to those of you that know me on Twitter. Um, I like, it's weird. I'm very pro. I'm very much like Sigourney Weaver. I'm very pro gun law, very pro gun control, but I find guns fun and fascinating. And this is the movie that started that for me. So looking at the armorer for this movie, the pulse rifle, as we mentioned, was a Thompson sub um, machine gun. Uh, looking at how that gun was cut together which was like there was like a kit put on top of it it's got half of a spaz 12 uh cut down for the grenade launcher instead of holding five shots it holds three the m40 or the m40 grenades are repurposed like shotgun shells with like a push button on top which i think is tremendously neat um the the smart guns are mg42s and their magazines are very unique and yeah it's a, they have like i
0: every time i watch it i always i always take note of that because uh, it's like a circular they look like there's a the very interesting attachment bass.
1: Yeah, they're yeah they're basically drum mags, and the only reason I know that is because I play a lot of Call of Duty, um, <laughs> and some of the light um, machine guns that I play with have drum mags, and they're not something you can easily change out quickly. And there is a Aliens Colonial Marines technical manual which goes into how the smart guns operate. But again, that's expanded universe. Um, but it's cool how they took the the this light machine gun, added Kawasaki motorcycle parts to it, made it work. Their handguns were all Heckler & Koch VP-70s, which is a handgun that they don't make anymore, but they chose it because it looked very, very, very fu- futuristic. I think Vasquez uses a 1911 at one point, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, right.
0: Right. One of those scenes with Vasquez, uh, the one that I always think of when I think of, of Vasquez using a pistol where like the foot is on the alien's head and yeah. then, like the pistol unloads. that's actually Gail and heard, uh, yeah, firing the gun, uh, cause they had to do reshoots. And I guess, uh, uh, for whatever reason, the actress behind Vasquez was not available.
1: So Gail did it herself. Yeah. I think that's really neat. Um, plus, that's one thing that I love too that the aliens one of the things that the movie very much gets across remarkably well is just because you have superior firepower does not mean you are going to win and what do I mean by that the aliens themselves are deadly um melee fighters they've got razor sharp claws they've got that that tail which technically secretes poison and that's what paralyzes you so they can cocoon you but um their their internal organs and all their blood is under remarkable high pressure under that exoskeleton so when you puncture that you get sprayed in the face with a deadly acid which can eat through metal like it's in one of the movies i think they describe it as a molecular acid or something very very bad
0: um yeah they they directly use the term molecular acid because i always think about that when i think of it uh i think they do they use it to great effect the blood spray in this they use it to great effect and uh especially on drake because drake gets like a whole bunch of uh you know Of acid on his face and there's that brief effect shot where his face is just completely fucked up and melted and you're just like damn and then i love how um you know it takes you know it it takes hicks out of the out of the final final big battle because you know he's too close and he gets blood sprayed on him and it fucks him up and i i don't know i i was i'm just really impressed by you know the realistic ways in which they pretty much go look if you're firing this this close to an alien you're gonna get fucked up because the blood like they don't take any uh and they don't cut any corners i would say They, they pretty much they set up their rules and they stick by their rules and you know
1: a lot of movies don't do that i mean another thing um one of my one of my favorite effect shot in the entire movie is when hicks shoves the shotgun in the alien's mouth eat this and it blows up and even seeing some of the test footage it still looks impressive as hell um and they film that by shoving the shotgun in the alien's mouth and filming it backward yeah i i read that and then i was watching the movie today and i was like all right it's
0: gonna be obvious i'm gonna be able to see that they did this in reverse and i was like nope i can't tell I cannot tell. Like it, it, looks just as good as it did the first time. And the same thing, knowing about how they filmed the like strangle uh, of with the face hugger tail wrapping around, uh, you know, Ellen Ripley's neck. They did that stuff in reverse too. And I, again, I watched it looking for that, knowing that, seeing all this behind the scenes footage, being like, all right, I'm going to see it this time. And no, no, it's done so well that it it just you know. It never, uh, never stops to impress, which is amazing. Uh, You did mention the, uh, while we're on this subject, there's just like a brief weird story I have in terms of that story about the shotgun is for whatever reason, in one of the very early missions of Call of Duty Modern Warfare, so Call of Duty 4, You're about to get onto a boat to do a fight and somebody has a shotgun and they look at the camera and go, "Uh, I like to keep this for close encounters and, uh, you know, which is a direct quote from aliens. And it's always one of those things that kind of like helped me start to understand how influential the film was to uh you know everything that i was playing and and living in my normal sci-fi video game loving life and uh this is like the impotence for so much of that
1: i remember when i was playing halo combat evolved back in 2001 with the original xbox and one of the marine guys that that help out the master chief is like game over man um (laughs) just to see that permeate culture um and supposedly that line was improvised um i think i saw um and that's like one of the most famous lines ever right like that's so so
0: famous like paxton permanently left a uh, indelible mark on cinema because that line is uh, is incredibly famous and you know is referenced for all gamers for all time because you know whenever we get a game over or you know we live or you know in real life when you're dealt with and facing an impossible situation uh you know game over man constantly comes up although
1: one of the first memories i i have of this didn't come from halo surprisingly so back in 1990 something i can't remember the year when the super nintendo version of alien 3 came out where ripley has a pulse rifle a flamethrower and (laughs) and everything when you die in that game and you get the final game over screen, it shows the alien Xenomorph face in your in your face and you have no more continues left. That's one of the clearest examples of digitized speech I'd heard outside of Atari's Star Wars. Yeah. Because it's crystal yo, clear. That
0: is very, very true. That game, by the way, is actually pretty fun. It's a little repetitive, but I, th- I think it's a pretty fun game overall.
1: Yeah, like, it's one of my one of my Super Nintendo picks. Um, but uh, getting back to effects, uh, another thing that this movie did right was its miniatures. Like, uh, when they crash out, uh, when they crash the uh, drop ship, they had to do four or five different tests f- for that. And just seeing that beautiful model get trashed, and just how they had to do the explosions with, like... Um, micro charges and it's all very much dependent on timing and there's one thing in that scene and i don't know this sound effect has always stuck with me too when the dropship hits the atmosphere processor doors you see the ship explode and you see debris come flying towards the screen there is one support bar or metal beam or something comes flying at the camera, and it just has this very distinctive metal clang. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about because for whatever reason, my eyes are always drawn to it because I think that is the portion of the ship that during that explosion makes it the closest to the characters. Um, So it really catches the eye and it has a very, uh,
1: you know, echoic sound. Yeah, like there's, like that's wonderful special effects or plus the miniature work they did with the with the apc despite it being weird scale because obviously they had the like uh airport thing and then they built a quarter scale then they built something for far away shots then close-up shots stuff like that because you're you are to believe that this thing can fit um an entire fire team inside of it when they go to the atmosphere processors yet when bishop stands beside it at one point when they're just outside of operations you're like huh that don't look right um
0: (laughs) it's a tardis okay like insides are just completely fine that is funny though that's not that that is one of those things that you notice upon like 17th watch right like it's not it's not immediately noticeable but um you know those things kind of slip through scaling is really hard to keep consistent uh especially like as we'll go through on various movies on this podcast uh scaling is one of the hardest things to do especially when you're blending different types of effects work with each other and they're all being filmed at the same time and not everyone is necessarily on the same page with certain elements right so it's hard to it's hard to do and and again like that's probably the only scene where it's really noticeable
1: now there's one thing that cameron and his special effects team that need to be given so much credit for. And it's something you're probably not going to expect me to say lighting. And what do I mean by that to match those effect shots, to match all the scales and miniatures, unless that lighting is right, that effect shot will stick out like a sore thumb and you'll notice. That's so true. And the added difficulty
0: of, again, when we were, when we were outlining the uh, miniature scenes, there weather effects in that too and there that's so difficult to match lighting wise um and uh i think you know one of the things that uh, i didn't even realize was a miniature there's that scene where you know they first are in going into the colony and they notice that there's uh burn marks from the acid blood in the floor and uh at that point bill Paxson like spits and like spits down and there was not actually a a place for him to spit down. That spit is a miniature on the miniature set and it's lit so well that it's seamless. And uh, yeah, that's a thing you don't even really consider uh, and uh, is very true.
1: Yeah. Like it's just, unless you blend things the right way and that's why in camera stuff looks better in my opinion than anything computer generated. I mean, yeah, you can control lighting in a computer but your eye knows it like there's something in your brain that processes it when you see a visual effect performed in camera you know there's another visual effect and they were worried about it like a lot of the visual effects people were talking about it and we go back to the face hugger attack in um med lab when ripley's fighting it there's rain going on and when the face hugger gets pulled off that shot in reverse and the special effects people were like well aren't they going to notice that the rain's coming up from from the ceiling and they're like no because the camera is at such a weird speed it appears so random you won't notice but go back and watch that scene again you might notice it you might not yeah so again
0: like it's uh, i think that's one of the unique things about cameron due to his background and knowing so much about the technical side Right, because there there are a lot of directors and a lot of great directors who are very focused on the visual craft, right? Like they know lenses, they know that kind of stuff, but they don't know necessarily what reverse photography looks like for effects work. But Cameron knows it all because he had to do it all, and that's I think that's really why all of his movies uh, look so well and feel so uh so well is that he does have that background and you know coming back to it again and again and it showcases in all of these little little scenes and there's just such a richness to the text
1: i'm trying to think of like other things i like one of the really cool things is the alien queen which actually a miniature version of that and i think it's the miniature version that was coming down the hall went up for auction recently yep and i don't know how much that it's sold for but there are some props and some miniatures from this movie i would have loved to have gotten my hands on and one that went up for sale um through this really big auction warehouse is a practical flamethrower but not really uh do you remember the shot where ripley duct tapes the pulse rifle and the alien and the flamethrower together and she lights the pilot light yep that's that flamethrower what that was that flamethrower
0: that's crazy
1: now that had a small internal uh pilot light into it and then they adjusted it with a gas valve to give that specific visual um effect but some of the practical flamethrowers yeah they worked um oh yeah there's so many there's a lot of cool test footage that
0: they show Uh, And like they show them testing all these flamethrowers and you're really impressed by some of the range they can get and how well uh, they look on film because that's that's what you don't really think right like a functional flamethrower is one thing a functional flamethrower that looks good on film is another Uh, and that's a thing that people don't really consider. Uh, it's there's a lot of weird little details about the film itself that this was done on because this is not in traditional I believe one eight five which is traditional widescreen this is not was not actually filmed in that style uh, and apparently um, all of the Kodak film from that year um, has a slightly enhanced grain in it. And it was so funny listening to the commentary because this is all stuff coming from James Cameron and these are all little things that he's always been bugged about by the movie and then I watch it and I'm like what are you talking about dude like they did such a good restoration like I don't know anything about this grain because like it looks amazing on Blu-ray and I I would have never noticed about the, the different aspect ratio uh, and the little differences in filming styles unless I had heard him talk about it on the commentary so it's always funny uh, I guess it just goes back to his perfectionism right like the things that really stick in filmmakers and like affects guys heads as to what they think is wrong and you would never ever in a million years really notice it he's the
1: only guy or if i could get his like cinematographer i would trust to do a 4k restoration if they ever do that if disney ever decides they want to print money again um because they hold all the rights um it'd be very interesting to see what'll happen with this franchise when it comes to its physical restoration. Cause I know the last box set that came out had all six alien movies in it, but there hasn't been a 4k HD version. I don't think.
0: No, not of aliens alien just had its first 4k uh, a few years ago. um, And that was apparently like, again, like a really well done 4k restoration. Uh, And I know uh, in the franchises, Universal is getting really into 4K and really starting to re-up some of their bigger releases because they just did an amazing release of the 4K Jaws, which just blew my mind when I saw it. I own it, and it looks fucking amazing. Uh, And there was a lot of rumors lately that that, uh, Disney was stopping all these 4K restorations of the of their back catalog and not releasing it and then disney recently came out and said no that's not true so we'll see what is actually true maybe it was one of those things where they said oh we'll just get rid of this nobody wants this and then people were like oh we want this so they're like okay i I guess we'll do it um and one of the things where now that the alien franchise is in the hands of disney Every physical release now is, one, a miracle. Two, uh, you don't know how long it's going to be in print and how long it's going to be around, so you need to grab it immediately. Uh, It's now becoming one of those franchises because uh, Disney likes to kind of
1: hide things away. All right, so we've talked about miniatures. We've talked about effects. We've talked about guns. We've talked about actors. We've talked about the story. What's next?
0: Let's get into... Video games, and then we'll finish off with where you would have liked the franchise to go after this, and how you feel about the continuing story.
1: Okay, so video games with the Alien franchise have been very, very numerous. Obviously, the most famous example being uh, Aliens versus Predator in the uh, early two thousands, but related to this directly there was an there was an arcade shooter which i think was just called Alien 3 the Gun i think that's what its proper name is and you just shoot aliens with a pulse rifle though it is cool to have a physical pulse rifle you can shoot back and forth that is pretty neat there was another aliens arcade game as well uh which was like a side scroller um i did play that once in an actual arcade in 1990 something if i remember right it's never been released digitally um unfortunately although if you have a mame emulator i'm sure you can get it um sega and gearbox and timegate studios and there's there's actually a wonderful documentary and this guy follows me on twitter his name's matt McMussels and he produces a series called what happened and he has like a 20 or 30 minute deep dive into all the bullshit that went on with aliens colonial marines including the lawsuit which uh got really stupid and yeah,
0: I can imagine. I can imagine. Man, I was so excited for the pre-release stuff involving Aliens, Colonial Marines. I still own, I think it was PlayStation, the official magazine, they had a special issue where they kind of did a huge article on the upcoming release and they showed images and they talked about how there would be no HUD and this is everything looks seamless and everything is amazing. And, and then the game came.
1: Well, it's actually funny that you mention stuff like that. So there is a huge E3 demo for it, showed off this amazing sequence of you going across to, to the Sulaco from the USS um, Sephora. And it's this really cool looking sequence. It looks fantastic. That was not representative of the final game. And there was a huge lawsuit because technically you were being lied to. Randy Pittsburgh of gearbox studios kept doing interviews. There are internal emails that are showing where people are like, Randy, shut the fuck up, quit doing interviews. Um, and there's a reason why on trailers now or video game previews, you see in the bottom of bottom of the screen or, or on the bottom corners, it, not representative of final game pre alpha, or in, or in game work in progress. So that came out because of Colonial Marines. Yep, because of that wow. lawsuit. That's why you now have all these disclaimers on everything. Wow, that's that's insane.
0: That's so you an said enduring that, legacy. Yeah, exactly. That is quite the legacy. So you said you you were playing this a little bit before uh, before we recorded and before we started recording. Now that all the time has passed, the dust has settled. Uh, I have a few questions. One: Has it been properly patched to where it's playable? And where do you what do you think
1: about the game as it is now, uh, kind of excised from some of that history? The best way to play Aliens Colonial Marines right now is on PC because there are numerous fan patches for it. Because the game was so slopper, so sloppily coded, it there a, a modder fixed an AI bug because there's a bug where something is misspelled and it makes the enemy AI for the aliens frankly stupid and that's where you get the aliens doing jazz hands and all the stupid videos from years ago
0: Yeah, right, because I've seen all of that,
1: uh, and that made me not pick up the game. So what it has done, it makes the enemies think a lot more. They'll actually try and kill you. They'll actually use tactics, and you can add different things into the game. I don't know whether you can add in new weapons, but you can do a lot more with it. Obviously, PC is the best place to play certain games like this because of the modding community, which keeps it alive. I have the PlayStation 3 version with the latest patch. You wouldn't believe how long that took, to download because now that the the next console generation's going we're going playstation 4 to playstation 5 playstation 3 servers i don't know how much longer they're going to be active so if you have a playstation 3 right now download all your psn games update every game you want to play because you don't know when those servers are going to go offline yeah, um,
0: that's that's going to be a real interesting point of being, like, a game archivist, right, like, in the future, because, uh, you know, there are many, many games where um, if you don't have the servers to download some of these patches, they're just going to be lost, which is a, it's a different discussion than we're having right now, but, you know, prevalent to if you own Colonial Marines, you best download the.
1: Patch. Yeah. Um, looking at the future of the games, because I looked at what Alien Isolation did, and that was a different type of game where you basically, you can't Rambo your way through it. The best you can do is your flamethrower will scare the alien away. It won't kill Yeah, it.
0: so, It's very much an Alien 1 game. Yeah. It's very much like Alien 1. And there's even like one of the DLC is you actually get to play. Portions of the first alien movie. So uh what they were going is was is very clear in
1: that regard. I mean, I like the idea of an FPS shooter. I really do. And if I could build it in an engine that was proprietary to this particular game, like I wouldn't want an alien's cod that just wouldn't work because you move too quick damage wouldn't track right and aliens has to be a little bit slower you have to be vulnerable to a certain extent like in colonial marines something they did right but it wasn't used properly is you would you would hold your pulse rifle and then you had to switch to the motion tracker to see where shit was you couldn't it just wasn't a part of your hud that's cool. That
0: is cool because that's an extra level. And that, again, that's straight from the movie itself, right?
1: Yeah. So if I could do an Aliens game, I would probably stick with FPS. I wouldn't have a lot of human enemies. I mean, I think it does make sense to have um, certain, like, Weyland-Yutani um, PMCs or, you know, other mercenaries. I'm okay with that. But you mostly want to be fighting xenomorphs. But if you could find a way to make them a little more not bullet spongy but where you better make your shots count that could be really fun and tense if it was done correctly and i don't know who i'd hand it to um, for a development studio maybe somebody new like if i could see a coalition between dice and i don't know respawn that'd be wonderful but that's high in the sky and someone in the comments probably screaming like why the titanfall guys because they're awesome um but anyway Hell yeah um Hell yeah. other than that i don't know i want to see the aliens universe go more into the role-playing aspect because there was a wonderful game that was canceled and it took oh no. and it was very much like a game that was done by sega called alpha protocol where you'd make your own custom character. Oh, and, what really? Yeah, and it was canceled partway through development, but some test footage has leaked out, and you could make decisions like in Mass Effect. What?
0: That sounds that's amazing because that like you could like decide whether we wanted to like toe the line with Yutani, or you wanted to like be like Ellen Ripley and kind of be like fuck the company. Wow, you could really do a lot with that. mechanic and yeah.
1: Aliens. I mean, honestly, that's a project I would hand to bioware as long as they don't use the same system that was used in andromeda i'd want a more evolved uh kind of system where it dealt with morality and choice but your decisions would matter and i'd make it probably i wouldn't do it like a carbon copy of mass effect i'd have it maybe be a part one and a part two kind of like how alien and aliens are companion films to each other i would do it like that have it be a role-playing game where your choices matter where if you side with yutani at a certain point maybe a guy will give you um access to something that you shouldn't have or if you feed information to the union of progressive peoples i really want people to explore the lore of alien as it's established now not Maybe not paying so much attention to the comic books and novels, but maybe looking at the role-play material, which has to be approved by, I guess, now Disney. The company that holds the license has been remarkably good with it. Um, And the writers are right on the money with it. So you know it's being handled by people who love it. And I think if that level of care could be brought into the video game world, like it was with alien isolation you could have something tremendously special because this franchise still has legs in it i know alien covenant didn't do it as well as as the studios wanted i that's because i don't think they knew how to advertise it right i also think that um what the
0: people want for the franchise and what Ridley Scott wanted for the franchise are two very different things. I uh, I like the uh, Alien, I like Alien Covenant and Prometheus quite a bit, but they are much more like heady metaphysical they're not popcorn movies and aliens really kind of set the stage um and again like alien 3 didn't do blockbusters either right like there's a reason why alien resurrection went back to the the idea of having it more action oriented like in uh alien inns because that's really where you get the most uh interaction from people and what people really want to see from the franchise
1: you know who so, i'd like to see do it because who? because this guy knows monsters and he knows how to set atmosphere guillermo del toro's alien that would be fascinating that would be fascinating
0: because he would be he would probably be the one who would be able to really combine everything that makes Cameron and what makes really Scott's ideas work so well. Um, He's probably one of the few men who I really could see go for it. I I would be very interested in maybe giving Aliens like a big budget, hands-off TV series where they're able to either explore it, like you could even do like an anthology series, but I think you could do a really good... Story. If you kind of like gave, um, you know, the same level of freedom that they gave the Mandalorian and they really let uh, them push the push the boundaries and really push the ideas of the franchise to uh, a whole new medium, because uh, of all the multimedia things that have been done with the Alien franchise, I don't know why there has not been a really good TV series.
1: Now, let me ask you this. When do you set it? Because that will determine the, the direction. If you set it pre-alien, you got to deal with the engineer bullshit. If you set it post-aliens, then you have to worry about the Ripley problem. I,
0: I think that I would probably put it in the same portion of the timeline that Alien Isolation plays around with. Which is in between alien and aliens. Um, because I think that's my favorite era to set stories in because, uh, I, th- well, I also think alien three era, there's nothing that's stated in alien three that really kind of messes with anything lore wise because it's such an isolated film, but resurrection just, I don't want it in that time period. Cause they kind of like go an entirely different direction and I don't like it as much. Um, I, I actually don't mind that movie, but the direction they take the universe, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, and, uh, I think setting it in that particular time setting would uh, probably be my preferred
1: set. One thing I'd love to see them do, and you gotta do this before he fucking dies. You get, if you do a television series, there is mother. There is also father. Father is also another advanced, um, AI computer system in this world. You better have Lance Hendrickson voice that before he passes away. And that's Yeah, that's a
0: very good point. Just... That's a very good point. And, and... Good point. and yeah. he'll do it. I yeah. mean, he did those he did fucking AVP. So he'll do it. Whatever you ask him to do, he'll do it. Just, you know, give him a few crackers and some bucks, and he will he will do it. But yeah, him being the voice of
1: like a, a father or something along that lines would be really, really smart. I mean, one thing, if I were To do this, I would set it on probably a frontier colony between the three major factions. So it's a war zone, but not, or or not war zone, disputed territory. And then they find out there is an engineer outpost nearby. Everybody's going for it. And you follow two groups of people. You follow the colonial marines because you want that action element you bring that's what people want but you also follow the scientist element which gives you you know more high class characters more people that are removed from the situation and then you have maybe a family who is a survey team like the jordan so that gives you a callback to aliens and you have this you have this maybe be eight eight to ten episodes you don't see an alien minimum until episode three because the mandalorian it showed but it didn't tell you didn't get you didn't get a walker till like episode four or five and then you got um a bunch of callbacks in episode six i think with the devorian and droids and an x-wing finally shows up and then in episode eight they pulled out all the stops with the tie fighter and all that shit so right right if they took yeah, the Disney I approach. Think... Yeah, I mean, they'd have to right now, because that's yeah. who got it. Because you don't... Because I think the problem is, when you when you adapt a popular property to TV, if you play the greatest hits too often, people are going to stop tuning in. I think that's what made The Walking Dead turn into such shit. It was oh, super gosh. popular for so long, but once they dragged out the prison, and then they dragged out Alexandria people started leaving the show if you did an original alien story original set in a familiar time period i think you'd get people interested and you could even have amanda ripley show up as a cameo or be mentioned you could mention the nostromo you could play her flight log sigourney weaver could come back and record some additional dialogue
0: Jonesy the cat could show up because hey, you know he's still around. Speaking uh, of Jonesy
1: know. the cat, okay, because there was no other good place to shove this into this podcast. So I'm reading this book in an early draft of the script. Jonesy was a robot. I can't believe that. Yeah. So that. at one point Burke is talking. Is she? He comes in to see Ripley. He's trying to convince her to go out on the mission to LV, and Jonesy starts going for the door and she she's like jonesy stop and then burke presses a button and the cat freezes and she's like the fuck he's like yeah your cat didn't survive when we tried to revive him from hypersleep so the company made you one and it wasn't cheap they wanted you to feel and she's like dude fuck off get out so at one point jonesy the cat was a robot which i think is kind of fascinating insane um insane (laughs) i don't
0: know how i would like that although it would give some finality to jonesy's story because that's the one part that's just very up in the air um and i've never read a book or never read any expanded lore that ever cares about jonesy the cat so we other than the fact that the first novelization has certain chapters from jonesy's perspective which is awesome um but you know uh, you know
1: bring more cats back into the alien franchise there was actually uh also from uh titan books this also just came out it's called alien 40 years 40 artists jones he gets a lot of play uh surprisingly there's one piece, there are two pieces of artwork that stand out to me tremendously and i can't remember the names of the artists but the pieces are one shows jonesy and ripley in this 1950s fallout styled spacecraft zipping around a moon with this alien looking all hissy and it's very cartoon very very i think i posted it on my instagram the other day um but it looks remarkably cute another one shows ripley in her underwear in this mechanized robot suit like it like they took her flight suit from alien and turned it into a mech. And Jonesy is walking in this spider robot uh, pet carrier. Oh, oh, I've seen this one. I've seen this one.
0: Yeah, this one looks awesome. Yeah, I saw, I forget who on YouTube, it might have been Alien Theory actually, Uh, went through this book and like showcased some of the art. And I saw that one and I was
1: like, oh, that one's really cool. Um, So that's awesome. Yeah, like there is so much wonderful material for the alien universe i think a lot of people should uh check out and i'm just going to give uh, some really quick uh recommendations there are of there are two books on the making of the alien franchise right now the one that i read was the making of aliens by jw rinsler which i think we're going to have an interview with them on twig at some point oh. in in the future That's
0: awesome because he's been doing making of books uh, for a long, long time. He did three really good, really heartily regarded making of Star Wars books, which actually has like an amazing uh, digital version where it's a a hybrid book slash documentary where you can read it digitally and then at points it will play an audio log and will play a visual element. And I was really hoping that, um, you know, His alien making of books maybe when they kind of finishes and if he goes through all of them uh maybe they they give that the similar treatment because that's a really cool way to kind of expand um you know that that idea and he's been he's been working hard at this for a long time so i'm I'm really big fan of his
1: um another book that i really really want to recommend is the alien rpg and there are two reasons for that number one i love alien so that's a given The number two reason is there's a really unique way to play this game. Now, you can play a long-lasting campaign, which will take you however long you want to play with your friends. A couple of months, days, weeks, whatever. But there's something I like, and it's very much in tune with the one-shot idea. And the one-shot being, it's called cinematic play. So you and your friends get together and there are mechanics in there where you basically play like a Burke type character or where you will come in conflict with another character and you challenge them to do something like it might be uh, you work for Wayland Yutani and you don't want this pilot to do this. And they've discovered your secret. You have to fight them either in a social conflict or a physical conflict. And whoever loses that character becomes under under the control of the game master then that person who just lost they get another character or they're like okay guys that was fun but you would get another character but they but it's also expected when you play these scenarios not everybody's going to survive to so this mirrors the feel of an aliens movie so you may start the game as private jane um i don't know finger fuck or whatever and you may end the game my favorite my
0: favorite star wars character by
1: <laughs> but you may end the game as miss goody working for weyland yutani who turned her back on them like you will go through multiple characters that is expected That's and, awesome. and i've that never seen really that fun. happen before in a role-playing game and i think the mechanics are really easy to learn however that being said it is expected you play this game with miniatures or markers now you could play this on roll 20 i think it has official support i'm not i'm not 100 sure of that but you could do it via tabletop simulator i'm sure i'm sure there's online resources to do it when i played it i played it via discord and i had a game master who was just really narrative which is how i like to play um so it's wonderfully supported and the final piece of thing and the final piece of alien material i want to recommend is the audible alien three drought dramatization Ugh, from last so year good.
0: so good that dramatization is so good um honestly all of
1: the audible alien dramatizations are really good but that one
0: specifically is is really a must must experience
1: yeah like they brought back michael bean lance henderson came back so it's got this stamp of approval from two people who care about the franchise because it essentially made their careers household like if you're a sci-fi nerd you know who bishop is if you're if you're a sci-fi nerd you know kyle reese you know corporal hicks those are the roles uh michael bean will be remembered for for the rest of his days and beyond so those are pieces of aliens media that i recommend to you
0: perfect perfect and with that Where can our listeners find you in the future?
1: Okay. uh, The most reliable place to find me is at thisweekingeek.net. I post multiple shows uh, weekly over there. I do work with Nerd to the Third Power, which is a uh, podcast which uh, syndicates with us. So I work with Dr. Dr. Gonzo, The Cat, and Skyblaze. I also work with the Geekcast Radio Network, doing Future Imperfect with Steve Megatron. Um, I also just get around, sometimes you can hear me on chorus radio networks across Canada whenever they need a specific dork about something i'm usually the guy they end up calling um and yeah i'm also on twitter at birdman dodd uh that's the best place to interact with me if you want to follow the show's twitter it is at this week in geek and as of this recording we should also be on spotify we've applied to be on audible so we should be on every major podcasting platform as far as i know so um hopefully you've enjoyed me ranting about aliens for the last little bit because it's nice in 2020. To celebrate something that I love rather than something I hate. That
0: is a beautiful statement. And honestly, you know, Mike uh, Mike gave me the break in my very first podcast, Anything. Uh, he's always been a dear friend and uh, is one of the best people I know. So you should definitely be following all of his work. And he did a lot of extra work for this podcast that he didn't need to do. Although, again, it's aliens. It didn't take him that much convincing. But
1: still. Yeah. And also, special thing, uh, Andrew will be joining us at, at uh, This Week in Geek for a couple of nerd newses in a, uh, in a couple of weeks. So uh, look forward to hearing Andrew and I talk about the latest nerd happenings from that particular week. I'm sure we'll cover something really weird and fucked up. And since Andrew knows the entertainment industry way better than me, um, he will have insights that I probably don't have. So this will be fun. Yeah, that'll be a blast. That'll be a blast. So
0: if you enjoyed this podcast, you can leave us a rating on any of the podcasting platforms that you found it on. You can also email us at milkshakesandmimosas at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at WineMovieNerd. Uh, if you're interested in all of the resources and sources used to create the information portions of this episode, uh, those will all be in the show notes, including the link to the amazing Making of Aliens book that dodd has been talking about this entire podcast and uh if you're a big fan and you want to hear more rambling and more of me uh you can even support us on patreon where you will get a free bonus ep- well for not free you're paying for it uh and a bonus episode every week thank you
1: and have a great day goodbye we're on express elevator to hell going down